Landscape Shocks Reframing the Energy Transition. Interview with Paula Kivima, Episode 76. Research Professor of Climate and Society at the Finnish Environment Institute, Bala holds a long research record focused on energy efficiency, decarbonization, and innovation. One of her current projects is focused on national defense and the low-carbon energy transition. This is our starting-off point to understand the changes Finland is experiencing in its shift away from Russia and how energy security is reframed. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. As you'll hear towards the end of the interview, Bala introduces the concept of landscape shocks, how multiple crises impact and shape the rollout of the energy transition, how regimes emerge and shift over time, The landscape was viewed as external, so not playing a big part in the energy transition. But as we know from the pandemic, these things actually do have an impact on the energy transition. So essentially in our conversation today, we're working backwards. First, we start off talking about small changes that are building up and fostering and driving the energy transition. So for example, we engage with Finland's shifting relationship with Russia, to the role that energy efficiency can play in national security. The undertone of our conversation is how we conceptualize the energy transition. For example, energy security is moving away from stockpiles of natural resources to thinking about the impact of renewable energy production and the role this plays in the future. Therefore, demand response becomes important not only for grid management, but also for security. Further informing the landscape events are issues of energy justice and security, how global justice is tied to resource flows from the global south, and the role this plays in the energy transition and impact on energy security. Perceiving this through different scales, if the north becomes more secure with renewable technologies, with resources used from the global south, what happens to those countries selling their resources and where our security benefits? You'll find our conversation wide-ranging, but academically engaging. Bala has published widely on a range of energy topics, and she's well-versed in Finnish, British, and EU energy policy. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. A final note, this interview was done for my 2022 role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Funding was generously provided to produce the podcast for these episodes I recorded in 2022. So I met with Paula in December of last year. So I'm really happy to get this episode out today. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Paula Givima. Uh, She's a research professor of climate and society at the Finnish Environment Institute. So Paula, welcome to the my energy 2050 podcast thank you but my my first question um is about your academic journey so you've seemed to have lived in different places and also uh, i'm aware of being in different countries provides different contexts so maybe you could start off about well i'll just let you start off wherever you want about your academic journey yeah so um well first of all i i never thought of becoming a researcher so what happened was that i i specialized in energy policy in my masters which i did in imperial college london and i was kind of looking for uh, energy related jobs but then i noticed that the finnish environment institute was looking for an evaluation researcher and i rang them up and 
and I got selected. And af- after I started work um, in a project that actually looked at sort of effects of international air pollution policies on, on Finnish uh, energy power plants, I really got more interested in academic research and, and how to improve my academic research skills. And this is why I signed up t- to a PhD program at the Helsinki School of Economics. It's now called Alto University Business School, so it has changed a bit. And even though I was looking in my PhD, I was I was interested in uh, environmental innovations in the Nordic forest industry and the role of environmental policies um, in, in so these sort of changes. Um, my sort of study was, or, or my um, the doctoral program was in the uh, unit of organizations and management. So I also got a, li- got a little bit of perspective on on what happens within organizations and how companies operate. Um, yeah, so it's sort of been going onwards from there. So after my PhD, I got interested in sustainability transitions, which a theme with with which I've worked since. And then in 2015, I got uh, I saw a perfect job advert for me looking at uh, energy innovation and energy demand at the science policy research unit at the University of Sussex. So basically, then I I went there mm-hmm. for to work for for several years, and then I returned in 2019 uh, to become a research professor in the Finnish Environment Institute. So that's kind of the. And then you have this. Um Maybe and and you can correct me on this. So uh, this management focus or management education, um, not management education, but a management focus or a business focus. Well, actually, I have a very multidisciplinary background. So for my uh, undergraduate studies, I've studied environmental science and business management, sort of a combination of the two. And for my masters, I focused on energy policy. And then for my PhD, I drew a little bit on organizations and, and management, but I've also always been interested in sort of policy studies and public policy. So, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm really like a, I can't associate with any particular disciplinary background, but I'm a sort of product of multidisciplinary education. Yeah, and and I really appreciate that. And and the the so I guess what what is that? How does that? make your research different do you think from others than this multidisciplinary approach um i mean i mean i think what what i like to do is i'm kind of if i'm looking at a particular problem i'm more thinking what theories or concepts or or disciplines would be useful analytical tools so rather than starting from a particular discipline i often sort of try to think about how i can utilize um different research fields to look at the problem. And, and actually what I'm doing in my current project, which started about three years ago, I decided to again to jump into a new world and I've been looking at uh, geopolitics and security studies. So again, I, I think that's what makes research work interesting. But of course, at the same time, you realize that when you jump into a new field, it, it takes quite a long time to really get to the to start understanding about the theoretical debates in in that field. Yeah, yeah, no. I actually I think we have similar approaches where it's the um what it the you, you use a, a theory as a tool rather than as a how do I say this like a, you're rooted within this uh background and academic framework. Uh okay, I'm a geographer. So but it's still quite quite yeah. wide, but you you look at a specific theory or a specific framework and is that the right uh, tool to apply in this case to maybe highlight or bring out uh, the answer to a, a research question yeah. or something. But that's why I also like the sustainability transitions research 
field because it actually brings together people from different disciplines or different disciplines. So it has sort of background in innovation studies, geography, uh, evolutionary economics, and it's increasingly drawing on sociology. So it's it's kind of a fascinating field to work in because it's people who come from diverse backgrounds too. Mm-hmm. And then w- within this area, because yeah, you've uh, been working in this area for some time at least, but but it's much more uh, bring out sociology, for example. This is a social science approach to the energy system, where further in the past, um, in the 2000s, even going back to the 1980s, it was much more focused on the what, engineering aspect of it or the economic aspect of the energy system. And how how do you see or how have you gone with this this greater focus on social sciences and what it brings to the energy system? Yes, yeah, so, so I've always, in a way, I've been interested in technology, but I've I, I've always been a social scientist in a sense, so I, I think it's a good development. But it's also very interesting because Finland, where we are now, is a very engineering-based society. And with my colleagues, when we first tried to propose a new project looking at the energy transition, I think it was around 2007 or eight, uh, and there was an energy theme program none of the funded projects were social science projects and we didn't get funding on that round and we got it later on so when i started when i came back to finland after my masters and started working on energy literally it feels like there was no social science on energy in other yes. countries like the uk it started a little bit earlier yes but but we can see that it's still a it's a relatively recent sort of research area as well but it's increasingly now acknowledged that it also in with respect to the energy transition that it's not enough that we have the new technology but we really have to think about how it diffuses in the society how can people how are people able to use it but also what institutional uh, restrictions or enablers are needed for for the energy transition Mm -hmm. and then maybe maybe i go off a bit and follow that uh, a little bit and we go right into policy um, because th- there's the terms like energy justice and a just transition being used, um, and these come from the literature and I would say from, from the research area as well, and then policymakers have adapted this. So moving from uh, innovation and a management business focus to a much more policy focus, how useful or kind of maybe, how, how do I... I want to ask your opinion, but maybe I'm trying to phrase it in, in a different way, is how useful is it that policymakers are using these terms like a just transition and having a just transition, I don't know, mechanism, that this type of language being used in policy framing? I mean, it is, I think it's useful that these terms are used and it kind of shows how the policy field is developing and, and becoming more interested in the social aspects of transitions. Um, and, and certainly, for example, now I'm, I'm a member of the Finnish Climate Change Panel as a sort, sort of a scientific advisory body for the government. And we even they, uh, the ministry has even wanted us to conduct a project on climate policy justice. So there's certainly kind of interest in which is really valuable because we have to think about how about the broader societal implications of the energy transition. But of course, there is always this risk, as with any term that becomes popular in policy and politics, that it's just used as sort of a language that, and, and no substantial changes are made in the face of it. So we have to kind of make sure that the, the integration of concepts such as justice to uh, energy politics doesn't just remain merely symbolic, but actually become implemented in 
into policies. Yes, and I, I, I would say that's probably goes along with like the research design that, that's in place or the expectation of what is the outcome of a particular study then. Talking about the UK, your UK experience yeah. and experience in, in Finland as well. And so m my question is, what has been your experience or how do you see um, how the energy transition is, is being tackled in these two different countries? In very different ways, but I think also um, if we uh, and what also what it highlights, but when whenever one person studies multiple countries or lives in multiple countries, that it's so much conditioned by the cultural setting where you're at, but and also like how differently, for example, public policies are being made. So if I think of the the UK where I studied uh, energy efficiency developments for several years, uh, and it turned out that the the government's role has been very weak and the UK is sort of trusting on on the emergence of this sort of local local community energy initiatives and and there's kind of a lot of a lot of motivation and enthusiasm on the bottom up level but then there's very little kind of government government steering and i think that's actually reflecting the culture of the UK in a in a sense more generally that perhaps people are a little bit left to their own devices in life and and how they, they then organize as mm. collectives. Whereas in Finland, a lot of activity, there's been a lot of uh, drive from previous governments on energy efficiency, not as much as there should be, but in general. But also I think Finnish is very, Finland is very much a society where you're kind of waiting for and, and reliant on government or public sector uh, steering. And then there's also downsides to that, that there's perhaps less of, there is obviously a little bit of this collective activity, bottom act activity, but there's perhaps people are a little bit more passive that they're waiting for, for the government to make changes. So, so I think there's like two sides to this. Uh -huh. to, to this um, so issue. maybe I won't ask which society is going to be more successful in the energy transition. I think that would be the wrong question to mm -hmm. ask, but maybe... Um, how um this bottom up approach that's kind of lacking though some more centralized motivation or in um incentives for for greater change or what what do you see the the problem with the bottom up approach i'm i, I mean i think it's very good for sort of experimenting and innovating but then uh if you think of how many like markets operate um, and energy efficiency, for example, in buildings and is an issue that it's very difficult to create kind of a, a market that operates also in the beginning without any kind of government regulation. So I'm actually a very strong proponent of regulation. If we really want to improve yeah. the state of our environment, we have to have regulation created markets for new innovations. Of course, when these innovations become more widely accepted and that there's like a Hold um, sector developing, then it, it should be and it can be removed. But yeah. I think in the early phases, things don't change. And, and we often say like, okay, or a lot of some people advocate for free markets, but then actually, even if you look at the kind of established energy system, we do have uh, a lot of fossil fuel subsidies in place globally. And, and there's a lot of hidden support, institutional support for also the old system. So it's not like it's still operating. Even the old system is not operating on a free market basis anyway. Yes. No, I love the, the role regulation plays and I get really excited when I teach it. So <laughs> my students don't understand what I'm like. Now we're going to talk about regulation, the role regulation plays in the energy sector. Because it's, yeah, it's, 
it, there's these hit, well, I don't want to call them hidden subsidies, but for example, subsidies you have for the oil sector or for, for fossil fuels, but also just the shape of the, yeah, how, because everything is so tightly connected within like trading electricity or gas, all these types of things rely on regulation to work. So if we want to change the energy system, we have to change the regulations and have different types of regulations for different types of technologies then and, and have it bring out. So that's my spiel, supporting yeah. your, <laughs> your role in regulation. And um, how, what, what is the, one of the barriers or one of the issues with a top-down approach? Um, I, I mean, obviously, well, first of all, civil servants do not have all the knowledge that it's needed and often are not the most like innovative either. So often that like bureaucracies are built in a way that uh, civil servants might be, get penalized for, for being too experimental, but also in a way, I think the energy transition involves so much also in, uh, in terms of technical and market-based knowledge that we need businesses and other societal actors come on board. And also yeah. we all know about politics and, and politics is, has a very short-term approach. So there's also a risk that if you kind of rely on politics and policy to change, things will come too late. So in that sense, we also need, uh, need this bottom-up activity and, and sort of innovative and, and driven people to drive the change. Yeah, and maybe we can use the UK as an example of yeah, limited political um, push on push on policies yeah. or how things change and backslide as well. Um, my my uh, next question though is about the the current energy crisis or what I'm framing. I'm calling it energy crisis, but I think maybe um, that's the wrong term to use. But essentially, we have supply shortages for for gas. Um, we have high prices in electricity. And uh, we have this dramatic, especially maybe I ask you in general terms about the current environment as a whole, we'd say for Europe, um, and then specifically about Finland. But um, would you frame our current environment as an energy crisis or an energy, I don't know, challenge? What, how, how would you frame what we're experiencing now? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's an energy crisis, but maybe, like you say, maybe it's sort of broader than that. It's sort of energy security societal crisis. And, and of course, we're experiencing problems with food and, and, and medicine supply as well, and not just energy. But, but going to, to the energy, I think um, we are maybe at, at an era of major changes and whatever decisions and developments are made now will affect the decades to come. Uh, and I think it's really unclear how things will unfold. So on the one hand, uh, I think there's much more attention now on the opportunities provided by renewable energy, electrification, energy efficiency. So there's a lot of more buy-in and there's uh, the demand for these technologies have, have uh, increased a lot and people are actually getting this to use. But of course, we also now have supply shortages for the for renewable energy technology, for yeah. heat pumps, for um, other solutions. But at the same time, of course, it looks like politicians are now facing tough decisions on, on how to um, replace the, the gas supply from Russia. And what, we, what I also see as a bit of a worrying development is the investments made for liquefied natural gas, LNG. And okay, they're building LNG terminals now in different parts of Europe. But another one, when we talked about institutions, is the institutional ones. For for example, I've heard that the Germany is negotiating at least a 20-year contract with the U.S. on the supply of LNG. So at the same time, we're creating these new uh, 
relatively long-term institutional structures. And there is, of course, the risk that are we now creating a new, different type of fossil fuel lock-in for the future. But then I think it's this is a broader question than just energy. Of course, energy is required in different uh, functions of the society to work. But also, I think it's about foreign policy and, and, and diplomatic relations as well, that, okay, we're uh-huh. facing this security crisis in Europe and by maybe, uh, and this is purely speculation, but yes. maybe, for example, uh, doing contracts with uh, certain LNG suppliers, European countries, then also maybe... St- create try to create international collaboration and safeguard kind of diplomatic relations in this difficult time we're living mm-hmm. and so um there's so much there <laughs> there's so much there Paula. um first may- maybe we'll we'll so so uh this i'm going to ask you a leading question so there's no differentiation between how people c- or Could you explain the differentiation or the, I don't know, the chain, uh, there's one way, this energy chain to describe it, value chain of how people consume and use energy um, domestically, I mean, we'll just keep it domestically, and international relations, this this foreign affairs. What is this connection there? Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. a quite a difficult question yeah. to start, yeah. start opening up. But of, of course, the connection is uh, that, um, well, first of all, any given country consumes a certain amount of electricity or, or heat energy. And, and also each country has a, has a certain capacity to produce that. Oh, if we, for example, look at electricity, you have a certain amount of capacity to produce electricity and any excess that the consumption when the consumption exceeds demand has to be imported from other countries and that already kind of creates the link whether it's electricity which has to be which is more challenging because it also has to match every given minute of demand mm-hmm. but also fuels so we kind of think that okay what other f- heating need we're try- the policymakers are trying to estimate the heating needs in countries for for the winter and then whatever excess we need to then bring from elsewhere. And of course, the Europe, Europe now has an energy union, uh, so it's operating on a slightly different basis. But if we think then any energy imported outside Europe then is subject to, to different bilateral contracts with, within countries. And I'm mm. no, by no means an expert in foreign policy and politics, but I could imagine that, for, exa- for instance, when high-level politicians negotiate large scale uh, energy import agreements it's not only about the the companies but it's also about okay government politicians creating the avenues to why should uh, they import LNG to us and I've, I've even uh, read and maybe everyone has read the news how even ships that are transporting fuels to a particular country it might actually be diverted to a different country that then might offer a higher price so there's a lot of different elements involved, and I think the kind of diplomatic relations are important in a sense that uh-huh. what, h- how maybe the governments in particular countries might for, safeguard. For, yeah, so supply security, yeah. these diplomatic relations matter. But, but this is like speculative uh-huh. because I'm okay, not an expert okay, okay. <laughs> in No, no, you should, you should pursue it. But, but then you actually, may, okay, maybe I jump forward a bit because mm, you published, uh, you're a co-author on the article, wait, I have the title here, uh, interplay between low carbon energy transitions and national security. I'll read the whole title: an analysis of policy integration and coherence in Estonia, Finland, and Scotland. But what I'm interested in this article is the, and it came out in 20, 
2021. And what I'm interested in this article is that you identified national security as an important aspect of this. And this was a few years ago before people yeah. really taking this, this role that national security and energy efficiency and energy just production uh, plays. But what, what um, prompted you to start to examine the role that energy security plays in these relations? Well, it actually started my, my former boss, Johan Schottetz, through said that people are seldom looking at the kind of negative sides of sustainability transitions or even war. And that was kind of influential factor when I started thinking about this. And and then I got interested to think about, well, actually, uh, there are links between energy policy and security policy, but they might be hidden. And, and now that we're also facing an energy transition, what type of potentially hindering or advancing effects do national security considerations have? And this was also prompted by me being a, a Finn, where living always next to Russia, which is which has been an interesting relationship in a sense that I think all the Finns kind of all have always recognized that there is uh, Russia is unpredictable and there's a certain risk. But at the same time, there's been this culture that and, and we and this also connects to this this foreign politics argument that Finland has pursued always uh, before this year this strategy of try to keep friendly terms with Russia. So even before the Finland joined the European Union, there was this sort of friendship and cooperation agreement between Finland and Russia. And we have kind of this whole cultural Finlandization where we don't want to say things that upset uh, the Russian politicians. Uh, so that also sort of played a role that in a sense, uh, we had a large share of well all of our gas was imported from Russia but also a large share of electricity was imported from Russia Russians were involved in new nuclear power development so there's been a lot of energy collaboration and I was also interested in why why what role does national security play and why hasn't it been mm -hmm. discussed and why why did Finland have to play this relationship in, in such a delicate way I mean, yeah, just uh, as background, so Finland has in in history been part of Sweden or Greater Sweden, but also of Russia. And, and before Finland gained its independence from Russia in 1917, it was sort of a, a specific, I think it has some sort of regional autonomy. Uh, and and then, then sort of via a war, we won our independence. So there's, of course, this history of being part of Russia, even though we've also been part of Sweden. And I, I think this this is kind of this this broader context. But then also during the Second World War, Finland sided with Germany because it faced, again, the risk of Russia. And as a result of the Second World War, the, the land area of Finland became smaller. But also that started this period where we wanted to keep up uh, in friendly terms and, and it's like a population even now it's only 5.5 million population so we're kind of a, a, a small country next to this giant country that giant. Uh -huh. that we have like different historical relationship with but of course it's it's interesting that you can ha have different stances so if we compare this to Estonia who actually also gained uh, initially independence in uh, I think 1918 but then as a result of the Second World War, became part of the Soviet Union uh, and then only gained independence in 1991. And they have a completely, they've had a completely different stance towards Russia and they've kind of very explicitly since 1991 tried to kind of disconnect ties, disconnect energy relations. So it's also interesting how you can, 
with a, not not with a similar history, but historical connections pursue quite different strategies in security terms towards a, a large neighboring mm-hmm. country. And, and, and Finland has been so Finland has taken this engagement approach with with Russia, and one of the results of that is building or uh, building a Russian nuclear power plant from Rosatom, and and using gas as well. Um, maybe you could explain the role that gas plays, Russian gas used to play in Finland yeah. and also the nuclear aspect well, of that. Well, gas is not uh-huh. as important as it is in many other European countries. So uh, so th- that's like the plus side because 100% of gas, like I said, has come from Russia. But it's we have uh, district heating systems in many larger cities, so which has been mostly based on natural gas and also industrial processes. So now we're kind of facing... Uh, facing the need to find solutions to first speed up the electrification of industry but also find different uh, power sources for the district heating system. We have like some bio-based uh, plants but it's still been mostly natural gas. And now now Finland, I, I want to go maybe, uh, yeah, so Finland now is not importing Russian gas but is looking to import LNG and so is but it's, it has purchased an LNG ship, as I am aware of, mm. and is building the like the dock or the infrastructure yeah, yeah. for it. And um, y- we talked about, or you talked about path. De- well, I wrote down path dependency, um, but and I think you've spoken about this in, the, in yeah. the past. Is how does how does switching to LNG develop this path dependency? Yeah. I mean, of course, it's it's a necessary step because otherwise we would have cold houses this winter so i'm not sort of criticizing the decision it's more like i'm sort of thinking how do we make it in a way that is an in somehow an interim decision so of course it depends on how we now now that we are in this energy transition phase i think the important decision is how much do we now invest on gas-based infrastructure versus alternative solutions of course in finland we already have this heating transition in place so a lot of houses have are switching to ground source heat pumps Mm -hmm. for instance which has already been replacing district heating based on on gas which also i mean it has its own issues in terms of whether it's because we have very extensive district heating network which has been uh, effective uh, but but yeah i i think and i'm not an engineer so i don't know exactly and i've heard colleagues saying that there could be chances that you could then use the LNG infrastructure later on for hydrogen, uh-huh. green hy- hydrogen. So if if it's somehow technologically organized in a way that we could do it and that we're not tied to, to, to institutional structures that then prevent us to, to using greener sources, I think then it's not a risk. But I, I feel like there's still at least, I, I think it would require some sort of more dedicated research project, I guess, on on the various potential implications of LNG investments. Yes. No, I fully support that. We need uh, a big research project with a nice budget for us <laughs> to, to examine it. Um, I, I would like to maybe uh, turn to some of the, the questions uh, I have written as well. But um, and maybe uh, Russia's war in Ukraine um, and the the impact this has caused. So we have higher prices, and you mentioned earlier about this is a, a also a unique period and could be a turning point. And is there? And I think you've written about energy regimes, and you certainly know what energy regimes are. So is this a? Maybe we could just talk about this period this you know 2021 2022 and now we're moving to 2023 Mm. as a as a unique period in the energy system development and 
how how do you see it? How how do you see it as being unique or interesting? I mean, I, I think the good thing is that in many countries we've already have had uh, developments where the the old energy regimes have been sort of destabilizing and new ones emerging. So we we haven't had like a blank slate because otherwise I think this crisis would have been much bigger. Uh, what the war, war has done and the ensuing energy crisis, I think it has speeded up certain developments that were underway. So, for instance, uh, wind power construction has been underway, but now I know that, for instance, in Finland, uh, they've made uh, government decisions to speed up the permit processes for wind, new wind power developments. Um, and, and because... Um, and, and certainly because the gas and electricity import were cut off now, we're kind of in a more of a rush to find the alternative solutions. But I think it's also, it's not kind of obvious that a new green energy regime emerges out of it in Finland or elsewhere in Europe. And I think there's a lot of conflicts and tensions around it. So in some countries uh, that have extensive domestic fossil fuel industries, there's kind of maybe re-emergence of German coal, um, but also I think there's a lot of risks around populism and social media because I've seen a lot of um, arguments where the green transition is actually blamed for the current energy crisis and somehow without the green energy transition, which I don't quite fully understand because, it, okay, if you cut Russian supplies, I don't know how we would manage <laughs> even without, but somehow people are now blaming the wind power for, for the energy crisis because obviously we do have problems when the electricity prices, especially at least now in Finland, they're very high when we don't have enough wind. But yeah, yeah. so so in a way I see that this is speeding up the new or the regime destabilization and new regime emergence, but I think it's still uncertain to know where things will lead and we might actually see quite different developments even in different European countries. Mm -hmm. um, no, I really appreciate you bringing up this uncertainty because I think uh, what we get from policymakers, I would say maybe from the EU, uh, EU Commission particularly, that, that this, we have to speed up the transition and here's some money and we're going to make it happen. But there's the socio-political interaction going on as well. And for example, populist politicians kind of clamoring on this that um, that is these high prices because of renewable energy or what I'm starting to hear more is it's these national markets. Why why are we trading electricity with our neighbors or selling them our cheap electricity when we should be keeping it and using it for ourselves? So I also am a bit cautious on, on that it's not just a given that we're speeding up this energy transition towards something that's sustainable, but rather we may be lingering more with these fossil fuels uh, for security aspects. Mm. And is is there how, and maybe I get back, somehow I, I, I want to get back to your, your point on this LNG and these international relationships and the role of diplomacy. So from an energy security perspective then, how how would, because Russia certainly is, now away, basically. I'll just put it like that mm. way. So, and we start to see new relationships developing or relationships changing with others based on these energy requirements for European countries. So, what what could be the role, or how how does this? Uh, I'm trying to come up with a question. How how does this affect? How does the energy transition that may not be so stable as it was before change the dynamics around? international relations, maybe yeah. I put it that way. 
I mean, I, I think a very interesting example is even within Nordic countries. So um, for those not aware, I think the Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Iceland, there's even a Nordic Council of Ministers. So there's been very tight collaborations. And the Nordic electricity market, Nordpool, has existed for a long time, even before the EU Energy Union. And an interesting aspect here is that even though we've had this Nordic solidarity, I feel like even that is now affected by the high electricity prices. And I think in Norway, for example, some politicians have argued that we have to limit uh, transmission elsewhere. Um, and and we've, I think Sweden has already limited somewhat sort of breaking the market rules in certain instances, limited transmission because of high area prices. But at the same time, I feel like there's this confusion about the role of the state and the role of companies. So it is effectively companies that operate on these international energy markets and not the states. Okay, I talked mm -hmm. about the diplomatic relations and I, I think what the states can do, they can of course facilitate things and th and they can they create the regulations and the market rules but it is actually companies exchanging and it's it's also a bit weird that there's always been these people who argue that okay we can't support renewable energy because we have to follow the market logic but then when we follow the market logic when things turn around and start going badly then they all all of a sudden want a strong state of interference on on markets and and how the companies operate that said i think the uh the electricity market system would probably require some re-examination because at the moment, and I don't know how it's in other countries, but in Finland we have this very interesting situation where electricity suppliers are hardly offering now any other type of electricity contract than spot price-based contracts. Wow. And it's very difficult for consumers, especially those with electricity heating, but also others that we're now seeing tenfold increases in electricity prices and I think at least yesterday the the price per kilowatt hour was like 60 wow. cents or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because the market system is based on the, this logic that the, the price is always determined by the most expensive form of production and there's been discussion on, on windfall taxing. Uh, as we are living in these unusual circumstances and the profits made by the companies cannot be seen to kind of be based no longer on a kind of normal operating process. I'm not an economist, so I don't have like a strong... Uh, beyond this, but I, I do think that, and, and, and of course the countries are now reducing VAT or, or doing this sort of other alleviations, but I think it probably requires a whole new look at the how the market operates to create some mechanisms where we still safeguard that people get enough heating and electricity. Yes. And, and, and I think the energy poverty, which has not been an issue in Finland before, it will probably will, but I, when I worked in the UK, energy poverty has been in the discussion for a long time and i think that is a really associated issue not only to the energy transition but the crisis but of course what we also see from the energy transition that it's often the the poorest who also cannot afford to get their own solar panels or do the energy efficiency improvements so the energy crisis is kind of making worse the the energy poverty situations we might have had because these people are less able to take advantage of the the new technologies. Mm -hmm. So would you say, uh, that was very eloquent how you brought out the market and, and the constraints with it now, because on one side, in, uh, renewables are really incentivized to be deployed and be developed because they're very competitive mm -hmm. now. But on the other hand, we have this increased energy poverty that's emerging. And um, 
you're not an economist, but I think you, you, you're grasping the role of the market. And we could say part of the energy regime or the previous energy regime was neoliberal markets and this competition in the market. So is this one of the elements that could be changing in this current time to, to, um, to influence a new energy regime? How, how the market is structured and, and the, how the, the price of energy in the market? Um, yeah, I, I find it very difficult to know yet how it should be changed. I just know that, uh, yeah, I, th I think we really have to have another look at how the markets operate and, and the market rules. Because in a way, we okay, we talk about free markets, but all any markets have rules set by institutions and laws. And when we're living in unusual times, I think it's good to look at how those rules are still applicable. Mm -hmm. I just want to emphasize, and I said this before we started recording, that one of the advantages, the great things about the podcast, it's not a journal article. So, so we, we can only kind of speculate on things where when we're writing our research, it takes years, months to years to, to write out, think through these ideas and examine the issues. And even now, it, it feels a bit uncomfortable, I think, talking about the impact of the energy crisis. We can start to see it like energy poverty, that this will be increasing because of the, the cost of it. But um, also, one of the, the aspects of this is, is the role that um, the new word, I think I wrote this in your questions, for 2022 is demand destruction. So, and that could transition to energy efficiency, but, but is this demand destruction also um, one of the, the impacts of, of this new energy regime. I mean, maybe I'm using that too, too much, this new energy regime, but, but what is the role? What is, why is there demand <coughs> destruction now? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't heard that term before, but oh, certainly okay. maybe you can, <laughs> you can think about it in these terms. That I, and I think in a lot of, uh, not in all countries, but certainly I think in the, in the Nordic countries at least, before energy has been so still so cheap that people don't really think about it that much. I mean, it has been rising. And, and in a way, now we see that this sort of normal model no longer works. And I think it has good long-term implications that I think people are now more aware that energy is not an indefinite resource. I mean, we, I've had people that argue that, okay, it's enough that if we have renewable energy replacing everything, but I've been arguing that we still need energy efficiency because also renewable energy production, it uses land, it uses minerals and metals, and it's not like environmental impact free. So anything that we use has its environmental and social implications. So I think this sort of awareness that it is now something that we need to pay attention to. And, and, and I think, for example, already now in Finland, we see, I think, 9% decrease in electricity consumption pre compared to previous years. So it sort of shows that there is kind of slack in the system. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. of course, like we discussed, I think it can be call called, in a way, I think destruction is a good word because it has negative impacts on certain households and industries and, and certainly more vulnerable population. So, so, so I think maybe it requires rethinking i remember thinking like since this is a podcast i can say i think it about like 18 years ago I, I i remember thinking like why do electricity companies sell electricity or why can't they just sell the service and why do we need to own our old, old household appliances what if energy companies sold us kind of a specific temperature or they sold us okay you get your food cooked and then they wouldn't have an incentive to sell as much much 
energy as possible. Yes. And I, I, I think it's never been kind of taking off, but maybe this also uh, brings back this issue that do we actually, what, what, do, what do the consumers need to buy? Do they need to buy the energy or, the, or can they kind of buy the service that you need to live a life? Yes. Which would then create also impetus for the energy companies to, to improve efficiencies. Yeah. yeah, energy as a service rather than energy as a yeah. product that we buy. Where I, I remember, um, yeah, in the '90s when I I, w- I was teaching English in Budapest. So so, and uh, but I was teaching. This is how I kind of became interested in it. I was teaching uh, English to the German executives at this local electricity distribution company, and so we would often talk about electricity. And they had an incentive program to sell more air conditioners. So they would give like a a rebate or a coupon to their consumers to go out and buy air conditioner units because then they could sell more electricity. Mm. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a perverse incentive basically is, is promoting, okay, now things have changed. There's other companies that, yeah, monitor and you can compare your bills with your neighbors so you can kind of understand how to reduce your consumption. And there, there is slack in the system, like you said, 9% reduction. So maybe on one hand, it's too much for, for some households, but maybe for others, it, it, they don't notice the difference by just changing their habits then. Um, and, and then um, in, in, um, in, in this area of energy efficiency and energy as a service then, um, do you think going forward government policy will emphasize this even more? Because uh, as you mentioned, if we have more renewable energy, um, you know, we need to have it just to cover up the waste that's in the system. So how do we go about removing some of this waste? Um, I, I mean, just to go back to energy efficiency, which I've also researched for years, and I just feel like even now, okay, we see it in the EU repower um, policy and, and we see it mentioned, but I'm still surprised in how little, at least the countries I've looked at, still emphasize energy efficiency. So Finland, we had like an energy efficiency, energy saving campaign this autumn, but I also think that that wasn't as visible as it could have been. In the UK, certainly energy efficiency has never been popular for policy or for companies. I think it's because it's in a way also something invisible. But I'm still surprised that somehow it's not not popular. I don't know why. Is it because of its invisibility or it's not like a, a fancy engineering design that you can automatically see? Or, or what's what's this kind of issue, and and also this kind of service-based business logic has taken. It's been quite difficult to. We studied um, energy services, I think about seven years ago, and the energy service market in Finland, and it was still very small, and there wasn't kind of enough com- companies offering this to consumers. I think it's we've seen a little bit more now. But I, I somehow think that the take-up of services is also difficult. I've studied also mobility as a service and the development, and it now seems to have dwindled a little bit. So it's somehow easier to sell people these solar panels and electric vehicles yes. than just this, this sort of random idea. Then like a demand energy. reduction yeah. service. Uh-huh. Is, there, is there a way for policymakers... <laughs> I get to ask the questions and... It's great because you get to answer them. So, mm-hmm. so I can come up with hard questions that may be hard to answer. But this connection between energy efficiency and energy security, um, in my mind, th- there is a connection there. And 
how 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 could be a way to maybe emphasize this connection with demand reduction, energy efficiency mm. measures, and how to make a country, if we even want to become a bit more nationalistic, right? How to make a country more energy secure? How, how in what ways could this, this connection be emphasized? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. And it kind of takes us back to the 1970s energy crisis when mm. actually was a time when energy saving and energy efficiency sort of became on the agenda. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's also, I mean, I don't have a direct answer, so I'm kind of answering a <laughs> question yeah. beside it. And, and I think what the energy transition changes is how you, the, the conceptualization of energy security. So, of course, when we talk about oil or gas, the traditional way of security or, or sort of safeguarding it has been stockpiling. So countries have <coughs> gas reserves and oil reserves and probably coal and everything stockpiled. But if we think of renewable energy production until, okay, we have some ways of uh, energy, storing energy in, in hydro power dams, but otherwise there's, until energy storage technologies gets improved, we don't have the same ways of sort of securing it. And there kind of this idea of demand response becomes much more Mm -hmm. uh, visible and I think they've the sort of intelligent demand response solutions would be somehow that for example you give whether uh, industries are of course more important but even households you give kind of electricity or companies the permission to regulate uh, how you're when you, when you like you might have certain devices that you don't notice and they can kind of switch them off when there's a, a supply crisis and I think this kind of automated demand response mm -hmm. Uh, you know, especially in an intelligent ways would be ways to go about it. Whereas, of course, now we're in a situation that, for example, in Finland now, there's been a lot of information on that, that there might be electricity cutoffs in the winter and how households and companies uh. and schools have to respond. So it's this kind of, in a way, not nice, disruptive way of um, reducing demand when you have to at certain points of time, but I think developing these, uh, and, uh, and I'm sure, I hope that there will be more company incentives, but also uh, policy attention on, on the further development of these demand response. I have colleagues who talked about it already, like 2015 and how yes. we need to develop the demand. But we certainly know that we have the intelligent systems that we could also create sort of smarter systems for, for demand yeah. response. I, I think your comparison, your thinking of the 1970s is accurate in this. And I think politicians learned it was also, it was a bit of a problem for them to frame energy efficiency measures or conser conservation and energy security as a failure of political leadership. And so people kind of, we'll just say Carter did this and then it wasn't taken so well. And then Reagan came or Margaret Thatcher um, with the, the coal miners as well. So there was a lot of social turmoil at the time uh, and there was a lot of security issues and the high prices really led some some societies to to see and demand reduction as a failure like it's this consumerism i think this is why things sell like solar panels or electric cars um yeah and we could get we won't go into the capitalism and the deep <laughs> deep <laughs> economic system and the social system that we have today but they're yeah the tying into this uh, neoliberal market approach that emerged from the 1970s um, kind of shows the difficulty in trying to reduce demand uh, in a market market way. But my, one of my last questions, because um, we're pressed for time, is 
um, is yeah going forward um, is a research agenda. So, and we kind of laid out very nicely the, the current issues, um, also bringing in your past research and knowledge of of how we're, how this energy crisis is unfolding. But um, how how for 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 other researchers working in this space. What, what are maybe some key areas that should be examined? Oh, this is quite a difficult question because, of course, it depends on yeah. one's field, but also what to take on, to take on things. I, I, I think, um, so I've worked on security the last few years, but I've also dealt with some issues of energy justice. And I think also one interesting area is how kind of the justice and security, how to intertwine in with each other. I think certain aspects are mutually supportive, but certain might certain aspects might be conflictual so somehow looking at that at that in different settings and certainly what i haven't mentioned yet is this element of global justice and how we're sort of tied into global trade and resource flows and and how western countries are using minerals and metals from the global south as we have used before fossil yeah. fuels so so really looking at this kind of intertwinement of the geopolitics and security and justice on different scales, both I think the global scale is interesting, but also the very local scale and, and individual people's houses and, and lives. And, and so I think it's it's a really fascinating field because you have these different scales where where things happen. So that would certainly be one. Um, I, I think we still have a lot of uncertainty around kind of new technological developments that the political decision makers are lobbying for. One is the, the hydrogen. There's a lot of uh, political attention put on on green hydrogen, but I think, and, and it's been technically technically developed, but I think also early social science research on uh, would be interesting to complement that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, going back to this energy efficiency, energy saving, um, it's, it's again, I, th I think even though it's, it's a bit, a bit sort of intimidating sometimes to live in these times of crisis. I think for researchers, it also provides an opportunity to look at how things might be shifting. So it might also be an interesting area to look at how things are things now shifting for energy efficiency, energy saving, what things are taking place. And in my transitions field, we would describe this as uh, the, the pandemic and the war that now started as sort of landscape shocks and how these shocks kind of influence the regimes and the emergence of new innovations. Uh huh. So, sorry, landscape shocks. Yes. Uh huh. Because we have the energy landscape. I mean, I mean, the landscape is sort of seen as as an external context for for the energy regime or energy regime. So it involves a variety of issues like uh, global markets, uh, wars, natural disasters, and that that sort of things. But it has been in my area. It's probably the least developed area is the landscape. It has kind of always been assumed as an external environment for the development of new innovations and the and the regime changes. But it has been a little bit less uh, looked at in less details. That what are the mechanisms, for example, by which the certain landscape events actually affect and make changes. Uh -huh. I, I think it's a really nice way to put it because you can put different. There's there seems to be all these unexpected things emerging, right? And so you can put them on the lands on this landscape, like the pandemic, mm. war, who knows what comes next. So exactly. So uh, Paula, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. This is excellent. Wow, amazing discussion that we've had. And yeah, thank you very much. 
Thanks for inviting. I, I think I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.